because this is what you want people to say. They're always friendly. They're always helpful. They always call me back quickly. Even when there's a problem, I know I can always count on them. And that's what amazement is all about. Welcome to Aim Higher, a show designed to help us realize the leadership potential inside of all of us. I'm Skip Pritchard, CEO, author, blogger, student of success, and your host. My friend, Shep Hyken, is a customer service, customer experience expert. He's also the chief amazement officer of Shepard Presentations. He's a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author. He has been inducted into the National Speakers Association Hall of Fame. He's a member of the Speakers Roundtable. He has lifetime achievement awards in the speaking profession, and he is the go-to person for all things relative to customer service. He has an updated new edition of his book, The Cult of the Customer, Create an Amazing Customer Experience that Turns Satisfied Customers into Customer Evangelists. I love the fact that it has the word amazing in the title because not only is Shep amazing, whenever I see the word anywhere, I think of Shep Hyken, and you may hear why as we talk. But Shep, cult, evangelism, people wonder about this religion of yours. And yet you unapologetically open the book and you say, there's nothing scary about cult. And you are proudly in the cult of the customer. Why did you choose that kind of language? And what is the cult of the customer? So do you want to know the true story is that uh, the publisher chose the title? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And I fought back just a little bit, but so uh, quick little background. As I started thinking about it, uh, there was a TV commercial years ago that came out and it's still as unpopular today as it was back then. And it's on all the time. It's, and I say unpopular in a joking way. And, and that's the Aflac duck commercial, you know, Aflac. Okay. So I can hear it as soon as you say that. Right. Nobody forgets that commercial. So by sheer coincidence, I was doing a speech and at, a, at an event where the woman, uh, Linda Kaplan, who, who actually came up with the Aflac commercial, was at that event explaining why it worked. And that was that basically people will, some will love this because it's funny and entertaining. Others will hate it because it's a little obnoxious. But everybody in between they're all still going to remember it and notice it. <laughs> and so I said, hey, this word cult is kind of a scary word to me. I'm worried how it's going to resonate with my, my audience. And she said it will have a, a similar effect. If you're looking at a bookshelf with a bunch of books at a bookstore on it, and you see the word cult, your eyes might be drawn to it. Like, what's that about? And the word may be scary to you, or it may be something that you embrace. But either way, it will hopefully get noticed. So that's why I went with it. But to take it to the next level, as I researched the word cult, I found out that it's really not a, a just for religious fanatics. If you on a regular basis meet a group of friends in the park on Sunday morning to take your weekly bike ride and it's like almost religion to you, that in effect is a cult. So uh, really, the cult of the customer is about a group of people in an organization, a business that want to just take care of their customers. They're emphatic. They're just all over it. That's what they're all about. I can see now signs going up in companies all over the world where they don't have customer service department now, but they have cults. That will get some attention. So I, I can see this. Well, you you write this, Shep, in your book. You you write that, uh, quote, customers are to businesses what air is to human beings. I love that. They are essential for survival, yet easy 
to take for granted. I want to just probe that for a minute. Why is that? I mean, why do so many businesses, because we hear this all the time, oh, they just take me for granted. I, I don't feel that powerful feeling. I don't feel loved. Why is it that so many organizations just take customers for granted? I don't know. And it frustrates the heck out of me, mostly because they haven't bought my book. No, (laughs) (laughs) but seriously, it does amaze me the indifference that I experience in many companies, not all companies. I am not a naysayer that says there's no more good customer service out there. There is plenty of great customer service out there. However, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So you always notice what you know causes you the most friction, most pain, most aggravation, almost to the point of being uh, funny. I mean, I sometimes laugh at how deplorable it can be thinking to myself, really, who made that hire? <laughs> who put that person on the front line? So, and of course, it gives me great content to write about. But I, I think that what happens is this, people get immersed in what they're doing. They get very busy. They become very distracted to what's really important to them. And that is to truly take care of the customer because without customers, and I I wrote about this in the book, in the first chapter, I tell this story about the genie that came to business land. And uh, the payoff is there's a a guy named Steve Blank, a professor at, I believe, uh, Stanford University, who has a great quote that says, without customers, you don't have a business. Imagine that. What business can survive without somebody paying you to do what it is that you do? Not many. Not many. You know, I do want to just go, go off track a little bit and, and ask about what you just referenced. You know, who, who put that person on the front line? You know, it's often something we don't talk about, but, you know, making these decisions, making these hiring decisions, what are some of the ways that you can make sure that the people you are putting on the front lines are in the cult of the customer? Well, I think you have to be very careful about who you hire. You have a culture. And, you know, I talk about this six-step process. It's not in the book, but in other work that I've done about creating this culture of customer focus. And it starts with the leadership deciding this is what we want to do and creating a vision for it, which I refer to as a one-sentence mantra. Now, that is in the book. Uh, The second piece of it is communicating it. The third is training people to it. Uh, and then leadership has to be a role model. They have to keep it, everybody in alignment and then they celebrate it. Those are six steps. But there's one step that probably goes without saying is that you have to assume, maybe you shouldn't assume anything, but you have to expect that the company's going to hire good people to start with. And as you look at what the culture of your company is about, number one, you want to hire people that are competent at what they do. Uh, and obviously, the old attitude over skill may come into play. Maybe it doesn't. But the right attitude is important, the attitude that fits with your culture. So let's let's point that out. Let's get more specific. Number two, companies have a personality. In addition to their culture, there's a personality. Does this person also not only align with the culture, but can they fit in with the personality of the company? You know, if we're just this crazy, wild, whimsical group of people and we decide to hire a buttoned up, you know, a coat and tie type of, I don't know, employee. I, and by the way, nothing wrong. It could be the other way around. That person may be uncomfortable and it's just a matter of time before that person implodes and doesn't fit in and it starts to disrupt others. So I think it's so important that we hire right. One of the ways to do that is obviously you can take behavioral style assessments where, you know, people can take, you know, Myers-Briggs types of training or DISC profiles 
to make sure that they fit into the right personality of what the best performer is within a company. But I'll go a step further. Gosh, I've written about this in a number of different places, but you take a look at who this person is in front of you and know the right questions to ask. For example, if somebody is going to come to work and I own a hair salon, uh, I want to know, sure, did they get good education? Do they have a good For those of you who know we're on an audio recording, I think it's appropriate that you own a hair salon. Yeah, yeah, so I don't, but yeah, I don't have any hair, but this is true. My friend, uh, I, I have a buddy of mine who actually does a lot of work in the hiring area, and he taught me about the one question you need to ask. So I've been hired a number of times to work with companies like, oh, you know, the chains that you see in, you know, out there, the hair salons. And as a manager, you not only want to know about their background, but you want to know how invested they are in being good at what they do. And the question we came up with, and by the way, the gentleman's name is Mel Kleiman. Humetrics is his company. You may or may not know Mel. Great guy, a guru in the field of hiring. And he said, the great question to ask would be, what kind of shears do you have and, and how much did they cost? Because that'll tell you if they bought the cheapest shears they can buy, how invested are they really in being great at what they do? But if they come in with, uh, you know, by the way, a uh, person that does hair has their own, you know, cutting shears. So that's the appropriate question to ask. And when they come in and you find out they spent $50 on their shears versus an average of $250 or $300 for a good set, or maybe a high-end set that's five or $600, you get a gauge as to how interested they are in delivering a great experience. But I apply that also to uh, people, you know, sommeliers and people who are serving you wine. What, what are they using to open that bottle? So yeah. <laughs> I yeah. take a look at that too. Yeah. Just take a look at the, take a look at their technique even, you know, That's right. so you can spot things. High V, which is a grocery store chain, when they're getting ready to hire somebody in an assistant manager or management position, what they do is they say, hey, before you come in, take 15 minutes, show up early, walk around the store. And when we have our interview, we'd like to hear what your feedback is, what suggestions you would make. Let's you know if they're in an alignment with their thinking. Uh, I love Nordstrom's famous question. It's just a, a simple question they ask in every interview. And that is, what's your definition of customer service? There's hundreds, maybe thousands of right definitions, but there's also some really obvious wrong ones. <laughs> and so uh, if you answer it incorrectly, uh, and again, there's so many right ways to answer the question, but if you haven't answered it incorrectly, you're probably not going to go much further in the interview process. That's good. And I, I just think it's great that, you, that you're using a tool, a personality assessment, question, something to get to that. And I think no matter what the employment situation, you know, some people think, oh, if employment's too low or it's so competitive, we just have to fill these jobs. And that inevitably creates a bad situation. We're talking about this great book, The Cult of the Customer. And in this book, you have five cults, uncertainty, alignment, experience, ownership, and all the way up to your favorite word, amazement. amazement yes. Right. And so you have uncertainty all the way up to amazement. And you know, you use that word amazing more than anyone I know. And I talk to you. And then after I talk to you for weeks afterwards, I find myself using the word amazing. So people <laughs> are like, uh oh, you must have talked to Shep because I'm then everything's amazing. That's amazing. Or if it's not, then I don't say it's uncertainty. But give us a flavor of the Shep Hyken kind of view of the highest level, the cult of amazement. What does that look like? What is amazement? Sure. And, and let's define what amazement is in business terms to start with. 
and that is anything better than average. Now, does that sound like it's not a very high bar? It may to some, but let's add one other word, the consistency of being above average. That word consistency means it's happening all the time. That's what makes it hard. So we talk about you know how to be amazing. And if you were to look at uh, a scale of one to five, where one is poor, and then you've got fair is two, three is satisfactory or average, four is good, five is amazing. And how do we get to get a five or how do we create amazement? And the secret is you don't have to be over the top and blow people away all of the time. You just have to create this consistent and predictable above average experience. So I'll give a specific number to it as well. I had an opportunity to interview Horst Schultz, the first president and co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton. And Skip, I don't know if you had a chance to interview him about his book last year that came out, but it's still not too late. You should get this guy and, and interview him if you haven't. Amazing man. And he set out to become one of the most iconic brands in the world with the Ritz-Carlton. And he said, here's what we have to do. We have to be 10% better than average. I go, oh, this is great. How come you chose 10%? He says, because it's just a little bit better than average. But you've got to do it all the time. You can't ever be average. You've got to be just a little bit better. And I love doing presentations and being hired uh, with companies who have meetings at the Ritz-Carlton because I'll ask them, did you notice what the above average behavior was? When you walk through the halls and you see a Ritz-Carlton employee, what do they do? They engage with you, eye contact, hand wave, hello, good morning, nice to see you. And if they've met you and know your name, they will use your name throughout the entire experience that you have at that hotel, at that property. That isn't over the top, but it's consistent and predictable. This is the behavior that they have. Sure, there's going to be over-the-top opportunities when something goes wrong and they have a chance to overcome the problem or the issue, or maybe they overhear something and can surprise you, but you can't depend on that. So I've always said a little better than average all of the time. And when Horst Schultz assigned the number 10%, I realized on a scale of one to five, if three is average, that's a 3.3. Anybody can be a 3.3. Doing it consistently is the key though. Not easy. Yeah. People will say they're amazing. And you're right. It's not easy because this is what you want people to say. They're always friendly. They're always helpful. They always call me back quickly. Even when there's a problem, I know I can always count on them. And that's what amazement is all about. So, Shep, how do you, you know, as you, as you look at these five cults, and, and I want to, you know, think about amazement at the top, one of the things that we've noticed in research is how many people self-grade themselves much higher than average. They think they're better than average looking. Professors say they're the better than average <laughs> professor, right? Customers think that. And yet when we do the surveys, we find out, you know what? We're not really better than average. There is a reason for things skewing to average. So how do corporate leaders guard against self-delusion in kind of rating themselves as, are we are we truly, right? That Ritz-Carlton goal of 10%. Are we truly there or is that a delusion factor? Sure. A great question. And it was Peter Drucker or somebody like Peter Drucker that said, you can't manage what you don't measure. You know, it could have been Deming, but it's so true. And I think measurement's important. And here's the wake up call. And the stats are out there that many corporate executives and people at the company believe that they deliver a better experience than the customer will actually grade them on. So let's start there. Let's take a quick survey of our executives. As a matter of fact, 
anybody in the company or everybody in the company, how do you think we're doing when it comes to customer service? Then go out there and ask the customer. And by the way, the bigger the delta, the bigger the difference means you've got more work to do. In some cases, it is very closely aligned. But in many cases, there's a discrepancy. So at that point, you say, what do we need to do to take it to where we get we close the gap? We get closer and closer. By the way, I would love to think we're never, ever going to totally get there because we should always be trying to improve. And by the way, as great as you might be, there will always be somebody out there that is a naysayer about what you do just because there are people out there that don't like anything. And conversely, there are people out there that love everything. So when we get enough data, I think the secret to getting real data, in, and I'm not any kind of a data analyst of any kind, but I know that when I've taken a look at my ratings when I speak, or when I look at a client's ratings when their customers grade them, I said, you know what you should do? Throw out the 5% at the bottom and the 5% at the top. And by the way, most likely you're going to have more positives than negatives. So you're end up ending up throwing away a higher number of people at the top. But I think that 90% in the middle is the real number. I think those are the ones that uh, they're not the outliers. Those are the ones that won't grade you great no matter what you do or poor no matter what you do. They are the real ones. Take a look at that. And hopefully that's going to give you a better picture. But this gap that we're talking about must be narrowed. And the way to do that is to recognize where you are in relationship to what the customer's perceptions are. And by the way, it's the customer's perception. That's the one that counts. No other one counts. No matter how good you think you are, they are the judge and the jury. Figure out a way to close that gap by what you do in the behavior and the process that you have, and you'll find yourself getting higher and higher grades. Well, that's good. And Shep, I have another question. You know, this is just it's interesting talking to you because we're friends for a number of years. And so I can just randomly ask questions that that follow up with these. And, and I'm curious about something else. So you speak to organizations all over the world. You're talking about customer service. You write articles on it constantly. You're living, breathing it on a daily basis and seeing the inside of all these organizations. So as a consumer, I have something else as we, as we think about this self-delusion, as we think about you know, leaders and companies who are saying, yeah, we need the data and, you know, let's get this data, Shep's saying, and then we can look at it. Well, here's something that's so interesting to me. I feel like I've had enormous pressure from certain companies, such as a car manufacturer, car dealer, as an example, where I had a horrible experience recently and the car wasn't ready and this was ready. I mean, I can't even go through all of the issues that had occurred. And at the very end, the rep from the dealership sitting in the car and he's saying, now I know this has been a horrible experience for all of these reasons, but remember, you're going to get a survey and I need you to rate me as truly outstanding because if anything's not perfect, oh, it's going to no. come down on me. And if it doesn't come down on me perfectly, I am going to get a bad rating and that's going to mean this. And my family, I mean, it went on and on. Yeah, and we won't way, eat I, for a week. It yes, could be a yes, month. Yes. I might lose my job. I'll go on the dole. No, I, this is not the first time this has happened at the dealership then, you know, the pressure is, is just to, to either lie as a customer to, and that's what he's asking for, to just not fill it out at all, which, which is the pressure or, you know, just to do anything else. I mean, it's an enormous amount of pressure. So how did, how do company leaders get the real data? And I think company leaders contribute to this problem by some of the systems they're putting in places to create this uh, false narrative. Cause he's like, Oh, it wasn't my fault. It was their fault and parts fault. And and by the way, he was right. It really wasn't his fault. But 
how can I as a customer then rate you as truly outstanding when it was horrible? So great question. And number one, I would never lie on a survey. I might say to somebody, do you really want me to put my honest feedback? Because you know what it is. And this particular salesperson that you're working with even admitted to you, I know it didn't go well, but please still. And my answer to that is no way. How can you make this right before I get there? Because you can turn it around. And I don't know what turning it around means. Uh, First of all, I think that if this is your dealer and you've been assigned a salesperson and things aren't going well, that salesperson needs to be your go-to person or a manager needs to step up and introduce themselves to you the moment you decide to do business with that dealership and say, ever have a problem, you come to me. Our goal is to give you on a scale of one to five, a five or one to 10, a 10. We want you to rate us that way. So we've got to deliver service that way. And if there's anything we're doing that's less than that, I'd love to let you let us know in the moment when it's happening or shortly thereafter. So we have a way to fix it. I have a friend of mine. He has a janitorial company that goes out to to, um, businesses and cleans their, um, you know, their offices late in the evening. In his contract, it specifically says, if you have a problem, you promise to let me know about it because I can't fix it if I don't know about it. And I need to do everything I can to give you the best that you deserve. And if there's a problem, and you know what, people sign it. And he trains his customers to let them know about the problems so he can resolve them. But I think your question's a little bit different. And that is, how do we deal with this uh, salesperson, this any business that does this, not just a car dealership. And I believe you put all of your employees on notice. You say, everybody, this is what we're going for. And if you're a hotel and you're going to get a trip advisor review or a restaurant, get a Yelp review or any type of business that gets reviewed, say, we're looking for hopefully a perfect score, but that's not realistic. But on a scale of one to five, um, anything in the mid fours would be outstanding. And I would say to my people that if you feel that you're not delivering at this level and our guests or customers or whomever experiences a level of service that, you know, is not what we want to, you know, we're going to call you out on it. We're going to coach you. We're going to mentor you. We're going to get you to the right level, or you're going to go find another job because that's what our culture and that's what the personality of our company are all about. I love it. Excellent. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to my friend, Shep Hyken, customer service and customer experience expert, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, best-selling author, speaker, so many awards. He is uh, an incredible voice and has a passion for creating cultures of amazement. And we're talking about the cult of amazement. So Shep, picking up on our our conversation and these five cults and becoming a culture of amazement, a culture where the customer becomes an evangelist for the organization. And we're talking about leadership and culture and how, how you create this. I'm curious about this part. What if you're not in a customer-facing position, how can you also help contribute to creating a culture of amazement? Right. In the book, we call this a force within, and that is somebody inside an organization. Recognize that even if you don't deal directly with people outside of the company, your outside customers, you're probably supporting somebody that is, or you're part of the process that is. When we do a journey map with our clients, a journey map is just simply a a line that just plots out. It's like a one step at a time. 
when you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, I always talk about Jan Carlson, former president of Scandinavian Airlines, wrote the book Moments of Truth. And he, he kind of plotted out the basic journey of a typical passenger, which many of us have flown. You've got to book your reservation. Back then, you actually made a phone call. Today, you do it online. But remember, that's a touch point that the customer is having. How easy is it to make the reservation or how easy is it to do business with you through a website or a person? Major touch point. Day of departure, check your bags at the curb. Go inside, go to the ticket counter, go to the gate. And on the way, you might see a couple of flight attendants that wave at you for, you know, as they walk by. All of these are touch points. The flight attendant takes care of you. You're greeted at your destination. You get your bags. And you analyze these touch points and say, what can we do to make them better? But then look behind the scenes. What's driving those touch points? You know, I check my bag and I see it go down the conveyor belt. Now, I live here in St. Louis and I'm coming to visit you in Columbus, Ohio. And so uh, I get to the airport in Columbus, Ohio, and I go over and there's my bag on the baggage carousel. Well, it didn't get there by magic. Somebody had to put it there. As a matter of fact, it wasn't just somebody. It was a number of people that touched my bag. It went down the conveyor belt. Somebody scanned the tag, put it in the right pile. Somebody else put it on a cart. Somebody took it out to the airplane. There's a couple of people that load the airplane. And then the exact opposite happens when you land. None of those people will see my smiling face. But every one of those people know that if they don't do their job, I'm going to get to that baggage carousel and the bag won't be there. And they've created this moment of misery that's going to make me angry and upset with the airline. By the way, this baggage handler has a second customer, not just me, but also that poor soul at the baggage office at the air, airport that has to deal with somebody like me coming in saying, you lost my luggage. And all of a sudden, if this person behind the scenes recognizes, wow, I not only have to take care of my passengers who I never see, but how about that internal customer that's going to have to deal with the passenger if I don't do my job? So everybody has a customer, either internally or externally. Everybody behind the scenes impacts the process some way, somehow. It's a really important part of this book. Three service forces that deliver the cult of amazement. Force of one, force within, and force of many. Yep. And in talking about the force within, if you look at my Twitter feed, I am always, and you know this because I think I tag you on many of them, I'm always quoting Shep Hyken on customer service. And when I think of the force of many, I think of one of your quotes. You may not even remember the, your quote, but it was this, what happens on the inside is yep. felt on the outside by the customer. Yep. And that to me really resonates as you're talking about the force within. Yeah. And the force within, I'd love to think that everybody within creates that force, but sometimes they're outliers, but they impact the culture positively. By the way, the force of one could be a solo entrepreneur or somebody that's on that front line that stands out from everyone else. Ideally, we want to bring everybody up to that level of that same, you know, great person that's representing the force of one. And internally, you've got potentially, you know, the force within. Let's get everybody in the same direction. And the force of many is when you deal with companies and you go, it doesn't matter who I talk to. They all treat me great. That's very important to think about. So as we as we think about amazement, and I've been deliberately focusing on the top end of this and not the negative thing, but one of the companies that you champion that you're an evangelist, where the customer becomes an evangelist, is for the big green egg. And I love the big green egg. I know you love the big green egg. And I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit about them. Why and how have they amazed you? Because 
you know, consistently better. And to amaze the customer service guru is quite an achievement. Why have they established themselves in that level for you? Well, first of all, I love the way they sell the big green egg. Many people have bought the big green egg based on trying a piece of barbecue. Oh, by the way, for those who don't know what the big green egg is, it is a barbecue pit, a very expensive pit. It's charcoal. It uses uh, wood charcoal or, or you know, not, not the uh, processed briquettes, but actual, I guess they call it lump charcoal. And it looks like an egg, but it's it, it folds in half and you and they have electronics if you want to go, you know, technology wise that blows on the coals to light them up and make them hotter. You can control it with your mobile phone now. It's unbelievable. But what I love about it is the first time many people experience the green egg, it's because of the food they ate that came from the green egg. And many times these places that sell it will have demonstrations. And then on top of that, they've got cookbooks and they've got a hotline for you to call. They they give you so much support. And I love when I think of customer experience, I don't think just of customer service. I think of the entire experience and what they do. You're kind of brought into this community. I almost want to call it a cult-like community. Hey, there's that word again. Because anybody that has a green egg typically loves the green egg and they're religious about their green egg. It's true. <laughs> So that's why I love it. I think it's it's for not just support that they have, because it's really not support, but it's the idea and ideas, the generation, the content that they have out there and how they've taken an old, basically uh, ancient style of cooking and they've modernized it and teach us how to cook the best. It's just, it's a wonderful experience. Highly recommend The Green Egg. And so when I first started learning about amazement and amazing, I would think amazing was way at the top where to get that level of praise heaped on the company, the chef would show up and cook me dinner in my backyard uh, to be amazement. That, that would be amazing. Not, that would be. But that's not what amazing is. It's just being consistently a little bit better, like you said earlier, 10% better than average every single time. And uh, they have created a cult-like following which is terrific. Well, Shep, as you're talking to organizations, and sometimes you go in and speak and you talk to the same organizational organization multiple times, there's this sense of, you know, the expectations and they keep going up and up and up. And some businesses or some people may just be like, oh, Shep, we're exhausted. We can't do that. We can't keep raising the bar. We can't keep stretching. I can't consistently be better than mediocre. Give me a break. How do you as a leader help facilitate a culture where you encourage that bar to keep going up? You encourage people to keep stretching. You encourage everybody to keep reaching for whatever are the five cults, whatever one you're on, you're reaching for that next level. How do you create that culture that's continuing to drive to the next level? Right. Well, realize that, you know, uh, the five cults or phases that customers go through, it's very easy to move them through the first uh, actually three. The first is I'm uncertain how it's going to be. Let me see what it's like. I don't care what I've heard, how great they are. You get there, you get into alignment with what the, how they like to do business. You agree with it. You like their messaging. You're in alignment with that. Now you experience it. This is where the rubber hits the road. You're experiencing what you have. And if you like it, if it's a, and by the way, at that point, you might not like it, but you're going to move into ownership when it becomes predictable. Like, oh, I know every time I call them, they're never going to call me back on time. If that's the way it actually is, it's just a matter of time before the customer moves on, right? 
So the owned experience is the predictable experience. If the predictable experience is a little above average consistently, that's when you move into amazement. But I know what you're saying, that it can be exhausting. Here's the key. Training, and you do have to train people, and I don't care if they've been there 10 years, 30 years, or 10 minutes, they've got to be brought in and trained at a certain level. Training isn't something you did. It's something you do, and it's ongoing. One of the ways that we create the customer-focused culture is we train managers and departments. So we've got a client we're working with right now, thousands of employees. They have about 800 managers. We're going to train every one of those managers to do a 10-minute meeting. We're going to take and we're going to do a one-hour training on how to deliver a 10-minute weekly meeting on how to be great at customer service and experience. It's very simple. And we always start out with a short little, in the perfect world, we love it. You know, we create videos all the time. We're in a world where I think video is so powerful. We'll start off with a two-minute video that introduces a topic, uh, or we'll just create the topic and we create in, in, uh, this syllabus of, of weekly meetings. And then we help them learn how to deliver this short 10-minute meeting. Uh, let me ask you some questions. Tell me about an experience you created this week uh, with uh, that was great for one of your internal or external customers. And they have this facilitated conversation. That 10-minute meeting done once a week is what we like it to be done, but sometimes it's every couple of weeks. That sustained message over and over again, they're hearing it, is what keeps it alive. You don't have to constantly be pushing to make it better and better. Your customer is going to drive that in you. And when you recognize what the customer wants, you'll you'll set out to meet, if not exceed those needs. But it's the consistent, uh, I guess, reminder. That's what creates sustainability. The first time you hear you've got to be good and we give you a training, that's exposure. And then we go into repetition, which drives sustainability. And when we ask you to be accountable and come up with examples of how you've delivered on this, well, that's what takes it to the internal level where you start to internalize it as an individual. And when everybody's headed in the right direction, they're headed toward that cult of amazement. That is a wonderful, wonderful little speech that we should all listen to <laughs> corporate leaders several times. So Shep, I want to end with a group of questions that I call the lightning round. These are Quick questions, and you can give me quick answers, and the first thing that pops into your mind. So you don't know these questions. You haven't known any of these questions, but um, just just whatever whatever pops in your mind, I'd love to love to hear. So, All right. Could be on anything. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. What's the biggest surprise that you have in being in the speaking business that people would be uh, surprised about themselves? Wow. Um, for me, I love doing the speech, but more than doing the speech, I like what happens after the speech. If I hear that something's, uh, it's not a surprise, I guess, but for me, if I hear something is working and people are using the content and six months later, somebody brings it up, I go, wow, made impact that day. So it's not the actual speech that gets me excited. It's what happens after the speech. That's great. So New York Times, Wall Street Journal, bestselling author, people wouldn't know that what goes into that is blank. Oh, wow. What goes into that is, well, the first thing is hard work, but that's no surprise. How about recognizing the real job isn't writing the book, it's selling the book? It's true. So good. How about this one? Why have libraries made a difference in your life? Oh, wow. When I started my business in 1983, there was no internet. 
I went to a magazine store and bought every business magazine, pulled out the full page ads, knowing this is a company that sold something. And it, with an ad this big, they probably have a sales force. Therefore, they probably have a sales meeting. And then I went to the library and I researched and researched and researched. And you know what? We've got Google, which is kind of a library, but sometimes there's no substitute for seeing something, you know, in, in hardbound fashion, a real book with research in it and access to it where you can touch it and feel it and move things around on a table, you know. Diff- so I think that's that's how I started. That's what made my business. And I think today there's still application for that. That's good. So you've racked up thousands and millions of miles flying all over the world, speaking to organizations throughout the world, through all over the globe. What's a travel tip that most people who don't travel much would just take from you that you could just share? Well, I always get there early because when you are there early, number one, you don't have to stress about all the lines, but number two, you can spot when there's a delay and you can adjust accordingly. But even before you leave, starting the day before, watch the weather patterns, find out what the flight is that's coming into the airport on the plane that you're going to take. See if that plane's on time. All that information is key to being able to adjust if necessary. That's good. So many people may not know that not only have you been inducted into the National Speakers Association Hall of Fame and your Speakers Roundtable member, but you also were the president of the National Speakers Association. You give, I don't know how many speeches each and every year, and that's not counting the ones that you give in practice to yourself. So if you're speaking to a group of people, you've dealt with it all. Shep, you have dealt with it all. How would you, with all of that experience, how do you deal with hecklers? Oh, wow. I ignore them. No, you can't ignore them. Sometimes, especially when it's the executive heckling. (laughs) Don't say it's me. Yeah. I say, I say, here's the, here's the old line. Do I bother you and your job sweeping up the trash at McDonald's? Not that there's anything wrong with McDonald's, but (laughs) no. (laughs) Uh, So uh, there's, so many different types of heckling situations. But if somebody is just responding, and let's assume they just want to be heard, let them be heard, and then invite them in the right way. You'll invite them to be part of your speech. And that settles them down because now they're part of something. Because oftentimes they just want attention. Now, if they're being belligerent and there is a problem, there's, there's, you know, books that show you dozens of techniques on dealing with hecklers. But I think you always have to be very careful to, number one, do it with a dignity. You know, I believe the customer is not always right, but they're always the customer. The audience member, you know, may not be right. They may be even a jerk at times. But if you mismanage that experience and you don't let this person at least have a little bit of dignity, you may alienate the rest of that audience. And they'll remember you probably more than them. If right, that's the- right. And that's so- not the way you want to be remembered. No. Last one on the speaking kind of same line. I want to ask this because you've also had the opportunity to see numerous up and coming speakers. What are some of the most common or what's the most common mistake that most new speakers make that you've seen in watching speakers come up through the ranks? Well, I said something similar to this just a few minutes ago. The job is not doing the speech. It's getting the speech. It's like the job's not writing the book. It's getting the book sold. You know, you could have the best speech in the world, but if you haven't properly marketed yourself, you will not get bookings. It's that simple. When I first started, my mentor, Bud Dietrich, he's since passed on. 
He said, Chef, if you'll spend 40 hours a week on the phones, talking to people, again, this was before the internet, this is back in the 1980s, you got to get on the phone and talk to people and tell them what you do. That's what's going to get you business. You can write your speech and practice your speech in the evenings and weekends. That's good. My guest today has been Shep Hike and my friend, customer service expert, chief amazement officer of Shepherd Presentations. I'm always quoting him. He's talking about amazement. One of his quotes is, amazement is all about showing up at the top of your game. And another thing that I love about Shep is whether it's speaking, whether it's marketing, sales, customer service, leadership, really improving your life, your own management, your career, your leadership, or your company's customer service. He is always open to learn. And one of my favorite quotes of his, since I have hundreds of his favorite quotes, I'll just say this, is if you think you don't need to hear constructive criticism, you are the person who needs it the most. I love that one (laughs) because how many of us want to hear it? But This is a man who loves constructive criticism all the time and feeds off of it. So, Shep, thanks so much for joining us and helping us all to aim higher in our lives and in our businesses. Hey, Skiff, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Can't wait to see you next time I'm in Columbus or you're here in St. Louis or somewhere in between. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to Aim Higher with Skip Pritchard. Check out skippritchard.com for more episodes, interviews, book reviews, and leadership insights. And if you like what you hear, please rate us in iTunes. Until next time, remember, don't settle for the mediocre. Always aim higher.